Hi, Seem. Hi, Anita. Here we go. So here's my intro. Welcome to Fashion Hub Singapore, a podcast by me, Anissa Johnny, a senior lecturer in fashion marketing and management at Raffles College of Higher Education in Singapore. So what's Fashion Hub? It's a tool for fashion entrepreneurs, and each episode covers a useful topic for either startups or fashion entrepreneurs looking to grow. Today, we have the wonderful Seam Sinas, a social media measurement and insights lead at APAC Google. Um, he also has a blog with a learning component called Brand Hero. If you want to know, know more about it, it will be in the podcast notes. So uh, Seam is an expert on influencer marketing and many other things. So let's get started. Welcome, Seam. Hi, Anissa. Great to be here. Thank you for uh, having me. Thank you so much for indulging me. So I always start with this first question, which is to ask um, uh, the people I interview where they're from and what is it like? So where are you from? That's a good one. Um, I'm originally from a small, tiny country called Estonia. What's it like? Um, well, I suppose growing up in a country of 1.3 million, it's, it, it makes you a lot more adaptable than perhaps coming from other places, uh, which, which I think is helpful down the line when you go through life and move from one place to another. Um, yeah, I, I think that's, that's pretty much uh, that. That's pretty much the intro. Um, but uh, but yeah, life has brought me to different places, and I think that uh, the 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 Estonian Estonianness in me has has prevailed to some degree. But but also to some degree, I think has kind of mellowed down because obviously we we're exposed to so many things now. Absolutely. So it's smaller than Singapore. Much smaller. It, not not territory wise, but uh, but population wise, yes. We we've got I, I, the joke is that we've got an island that is the same size, but has I, I believe around three thousand people, which is seems pretty convenient when you're sitting when you're sitting there. Uh, but somehow we Singapore manages to put five point four million here, which is wow. incredible in itself. So so there's a there's a big there's a big difference there. So it's less um, space. Less, less urban, more space. Yes, that's right. And sounds amazing. Okay, moving on. So what did you study, See. Um, so, so yeah, I had, a, I had a pretty interesting <laughs> educational path, I suppose. I, originally, I, I had this romantic idea to go and become a ship's officer, which, um, which I did after, after high school. Or I, I started on that path. It was a five-year course, five-year your journey but uh, I graduated two years and then and then took took a break and then realized that actually it's 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 more about marketing um, where my interests lie um, it, it took me a while to get into or to really understand that that learning and and then I went to Denmark I studied there marketing management uh, and then a specific specific focus on entrepreneurship um, and then from Denmark uh, got a traineeship in Bangladesh and then I suppose the rest is history you've been now in Asia for I think close to 15 years wow what an amazing story of like exploration of the world yeah the world is uh, certainly exploring worthy I would say uh, it's a lot of a lot of fun places and 
um, a lot of diversity. And, and I think if you have that sort of openness, especially if you're younger, honestly, things are a lot easier uh, just, just with a backpack. So go out and do it. That's that's the advice. And then um, Bangladesh led to Singapore and Google, or was there something in between? Uh, there was something in between. I, I, uh, I very, it, it was a weird kind of serendipitous moment. I was uh, finishing up my traineeship in, in Bangladesh, and I had a video call. Back at that time, we used Skype, if anybody remembers. Um, I had a video call with a friend who was living in Malaysia at that time and worked in a um, kind of an online publishing publishing company. Um, there's this weird moment. So we're having this call. And then I said, like, you know what? I think I'm not done with Aisha. I'd love to see more of it, but I, I, I'm not sure if Bangladesh is the one. Like, I, I'd like to see different places, uh, different cultures. Um, and, 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 and she was literally, like, there's a guy that walked past her at the time that she had the call. And, and she was like, hold on, I, I know this guy and he's at our office a lot and he's an entrepreneur and has an analytics business. And he literally turned around and asked, hey, would you be interested in this random Estonian guy who wants to come back to Asia? And he was like, you know what, I might actually be because they were looking for a junior uh, marketing specialist, I believe at that time, that was the title. So. Yeah, six months later, I was in Malaysia with a one-way ticket. So, so that was that was that, and I, I stayed in that company for eight years. Um, they were um, they were focused on analytics first of all, web analytics, and then later that became social, um, and then kind of like a quasi tech and services research company. So we did a lot of a lot of work on just exploring the social data space and try to find what are the nuggets and. How do we how do we make sense of it? How do we make it work? Because at that time it was still you know Facebook was early and 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 when something blew up in online, then the executives went back to office in the morning and were like, you know, I need answers. What do we do with this whole Facebook thing? Or something blew up in Twitter. So they're pretty clueless. And of course, the first people that got these questions were the agencies that were serving them. So we initially focused on the strategy of, of serving the agencies. So a brand came to us, we said, no, we don't work with you. We've got this roster of agencies that are partners and we work with them. As a very, in, in hindsight, it was a very smart move because it, it, it allowed us to build um, very good and solid relationships uh, through the years that carried us. Hmm. Great. So for those listening, they might wonder, why am I asking you this question? It's a great insight to how people, who's, who's how people's uh, career trajectory works. And the fact that you say you're, you're building relationships, you're also building market knowledge and technical skills, which is amazing, which brings you to where you are today. Um, and so let's dig into that and dive into the influence of marketing, um, which uh, the podcast is about. So what is influence of marketing and why is it so important? Yeah, so carrying on on the same vein. So when I when I came to Google, uh, just more than four years ago now, um, and, and by the way, all of what I'm about to share is is my personal opinion, not representing my my employer here. Um, I noticed that I think the whole industry had another kind of wave wave of romanticism uh, when it 
comes to influencer marketing. I think a lot of it had to do with just the prevalence of Instagram and then YouTube picking up as well. We didn't have TikTok at that time. Um, and what, what I saw was that marketers are really struggling to find uh, a meaningful path, a path that has more value than effort. And, and that, that re really lead, led me to this like two, two and a half years of digging into it as much as I could and trying to find, you know, what is that balance between effort and value? Um, so in a nutshell, what influencer marketing is, it's really about telling your brand story through the voice of people, but you're still after achieving your marketing objective. So that's, I think, the simplest definition that I've heard. And, and I think that that's, that's still true today. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. So for small brands or large brands alike, they all need to tell their story through, through people, as you said. Brilliant. Um, are there any kind of, uh, because it's a fashion-focused podcast, any sort of fashion brands that should avoid it or do you think it's suitable for any type of fashion brand? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I, I think to also answer actually your previous question, the, the reason why we want to do all of this or, you know, we're, I mean, one, one side of it is certainly that like it's become somewhat somewhat unavoidable you know for marketers because they they can't get around the fact that it, someone will try to sell them the idea of influencer marketing but the reality is like the the, the data side of it is that um, people are really tired of ads and especially when it comes to crappy ads which are very easy to make because uh, people are just seeing so many of them it is actually genuinely difficult to stand out now, the case about influencers and why they are so um, why they are so relevant for marketers is because they have found an organic path, organic path to create to connect with their audiences, and that that's immensely important because in the mark in, in marketing teams we commonly do have the privilege of having a budget and we can take certain shortcuts and create experiments that, for example, someone might. Who is a student, you know, living off their, living off their uh, parents, for example, and and doing a mm -hmm. doing a, a YouTube channel might not actually be able to do, so so that that's really the value of it, right? That you you can tell those stories, or someone else else can tell your brand stories on behalf of you, and it has shown significantly better effect uh, better effects than 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 regular marketing. And, and that, that's, of course, broadly speaking. When it comes to fashion, um, fashion has always been about aspirational marketing, as we call it, right? Like you're portraying an idea of what life could be or how you could look like and how it fits your lifestyle um, and, and, and the garments kind of fitting, fitting into that picture um, or, or, or any other item. Um, so... In, in that case, it's, it's very important that you connect with individuals that help to extend that aspirationalness. And, and very often, like when you ask young people today, of course, who do you look up to? Very often the, the answer is influencers or creators that they're specifically following on social media. It used to be more about celebrities and people that were more far-reaching, I would say, um, globally. But, but these days, I think the world has changed significantly. So I think there's a very strong use case here for fashion influence, uh, fashion entrepreneurs. Okay, great. So in your mind, there's no one, no one brand that should, or category that should avoid it. 
Um, I, no, I don't think so. I, I think it's more about specific briefs, specific products. Um, I mean, the, the common, the, the, perhaps the most common um, thing that I would usually say, try to avoid influencer marketing in, in situations when you really can't give enough freedom to the influencers. Uh, that's usually a path that will not lead to anything, anything better than what you could do with paid paid marketing, right? Because you've, you've got a lot of, I mean, you've got a lot of tools in your in, in your uh, toolbox as a marketer. One of them being paid marketing, or even even emails and what whatnot, uh, PR, a lot of other stuff as well. So if you can't give freedom to influencers and and give them the respect to trust them with uh, content creation, that it will be very difficult to see anything better. Um, from a number standpoint, eventually as well, like that's that's at least what I've seen. So I th I'd say that's the first thing. So if, if you're in an organization that is fairly rigid, uh, or um, you have a lot of compliance or those sort of things, then I think the most optimal solution. But if you're really in an industry where creativity is, I would say embraced such as fashion and generally smaller brands then then it's it's certainly the way to go um the other the second thing that i usually say and as this especially applies to smaller companies is that you just need to understand that it takes time but this does not just apply for influencers it's also an answer for or it's also the case for a lot of a lot of other tactics these days that it just takes time before you find the right fit in terms of influencers and the, you, you get into the groove of actually creating value rather than putting um, so much effort into it. So, so it, it will just naturally take time. I mean, honestly, I, I would say that these days, before you get the marketing machine properly working, it would take a year um, of experimentation, even in a small team. Like that, that's been at least my, my experience. I know a lot of people don't want to hear this, but it does really take effort. But that's the mm. case with all marketing, I would say. Absolutely. Some of our listeners are um, uh, founders, new founders, newbies. So they might be a kind of one-man band as well. So I was wondering, um, you, you touched on some of the issues to think about. But let's say I'm a small business with a very small budget. Small business, small budget. Makes sense, doesn't it? Um, what are the three basic things I need to think about? Could you summarize that for me um, if I'm doing an influencer campaign? Sure. I, I would actually say that if you're really that resource constrained, then the, the first objective that you would have as a business owner is to make sure that the people that love your products and your brand are really being rewarded. Um, and from there, not just being rewarded, but also incentivized to talk on behalf of you in a, in a positive light. So share the word. Right, because that's eventually the best marketing is that one person loves you so much that it, it shares shares throughout the world and also to their loved ones and the close uh, close people around them. So that that we that would be the first task is to figure that out, and that doesn't mean that you give them like the, the easy way, or I would say almost the lazy way out is to just give them a discount. Um, but that's not necessarily why a lot of people actually advocate for brands. Look at look at different studies on why is like why is that the case? Then obviously, like from the top of my head, love for the brand is is the first reason why, for example, the younger audience advocates for a brand. 
The second very large reason is that it's something that interests them, right? So you can technically take those, both of those reasons, you can knock them out because for a brand to actually influence those two buckets is incredibly hard and it will take a long time, right? Like someone who's not interested in fashion will not get interested in a day or if you give them a discount, not going to happen. But the third reason is incredibly important and that is about giving something exclusive or something that the, the question that I like to always pose is like, what is a money can buy experience that your, your small brands can offer? Like, what is it? Like, is it a collaboration? Is it, is it something where you bring the influencer somewhere uh, behind the scenes? Something that is not, not that obvious and perhaps not even something that someone can buy. Like those are the things that I would really think about. So it really goes back into the whole idea of what I call value exchange. And I think mapping that out is a good exercise. You can do that on a, you know, with a pen and paper and just, just look at it. Like what do people want and what are you ready to offer them? And, and I think the reason why increasingly people talk about you or any other brand is really that sort of money can buy experience. It's something unique, something special. It's something talking worthy. Hmm. Gosh, you're making me think now. I got to think about my value map too. Um, so, what are the what are the things to avoid? Um, in terms of value exchange. Uh, no, in terms of creating your campaign. So you you told us what we need to think about. Um, value exchange is the first thing. Is there any things to avoid? When you're creating your campaign, yeah, I think I think a lot of it still comes back to uh, comes back to authenticity, uh, making sure that making sure that you're you have a good fit, um, being okay to being okay to say no, even if you're a small brand. You, I, I think probably the struggle there is that you probably don't have that many fans yet, but um, rest assured that. A lot of people are interested. Uh, a lot of inter- uh, a lot of people are interested to working with brands. Still, uh, it is it is undeniably one of those cooler, I would say, uh, professions these days for young people, and and they're very creative at, at putting content out. So I think like just be true to yourself, be honest with yourself, like who what your brand is, and and try to really find that uh, sweet spot with the creators. The the interesting thing there though is that. Uh, someone who makes generally good content or very engaging content, for example, it's not necessarily someone who's very, very eloquent and very effective in taking a brief from a brand and making that work, right? It, it's entirely two different skill sets. So the only way how you can test this is to really ask them to write a script, right? And, and then see how that script comes alive. Like once you get to that point, that you've gone through the checklist, have looked at the data, that it seems like someone who, you know, is high engaging, uh, the audience that you care about is um, someone that that person reaches. Um, so you can do a bunch of data checks, but eventually then the other layer of it has to do with brand suitability, which checks you can do as well, at least, you know, without even contacting the person, but then the real, I would say litmus test is eventually in, in when um, when the content is being created uh, that that will show you eventually you know how it will how it will manifest itself. So I would say that authenticity is something that cannot be sacrificed throughout that whole 
throughout the whole journey. Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the thing to keep in mind, I would say. Okay, great. And then when it comes to tracking, um, what are the best uh, measurements apart from sales? What are the best metrics? Yeah, so I, I fully understand this question coming up quite a lot, um, but I'm going to have to take a step back and, and just remind people that perhaps have not had uh, marketing training or you know maybe are new entrepreneurs, which is totally fine. I mean, you might come from an entirely different uh, field of work. So uh, we've got two jobs in marketing. We're building brand for the long term, um, and the value of brand is really about um, eventually when the brand is strong, then that means you're, you've got greater price elasticity. You raise your prices, people are less likely to switch to a competitor. Um, you've got better uh, repeated purchase and, and a bunch of other benefits, right? So, so you've got that side of marketing, which is all, which we call generally brand marketing. And then you've got direct response marketing, which is really about capturing demand that is already there in the marketplace and trying to make a case for your specific product being better, right? But you're doing both. Like ideally, as a marketer, a marketer's job is really to do both, is to play long-term and is to, is to make sure that revenue is being taken care of for a short term. But it's always a balance. And that balance, according to the latest research we've got, um, which is from the IPA out of the UK, for example, um, tells us that the modern marketing budget should follow a 60-40 rule, which means that you're putting more, 60% of your budget should go to brand building, which is the long-term play, and then 40% of it should go to direct response activations. And this is no different when it comes to influencer marketing. You can use those influencers, those relationships, actually, for both uh, both types of marketing. You can tell brand stories that are very engaging and very intimate and very emotional, and you can also help. Uh, you can also get them to help to distribute, you know, coupon codes or offers or uh, new product launches, etc. Right. The important part is that you understand what you need to do at that specific time. Now, the general rule that I can share from my experience is that when when you look at most of the most the vast majority of influencers, they're far better at telling stories that are more brand related rather than direct response related. There's a couple of exceptions in China. You've got you know the handbag guy and a few others um, that have really made their name in selling stuff or reviewing stuff. Right, like that's another category of influencers or content creators that is very much in tune with your DR marketing budget and efforts. But the brand side of it is probably the vast majority. I mean, if I take a guess, it's probably like ninety percent. And and wh when I say that, I mean that most of these guys that have come up to be an influencer or content creator, they have become such in a way that they tell emotional stories that connect with audiences, and that's really about brand. Right. That's that's in essence, that's brand marketing. So what do you track in those two cases? Right. So so when it comes to um, the direct response side of things, I mean, you've, you've got a couple of precursors also, not just sales itself, but but obviously you've got sale, uh, you've got website visits, um, you've got leads that are coming in uh, dependent on all of those variables. You can certainly look at um, 
the direct response side of things. But my my caution there is that generally what people underestimate is the is the amount of reach and frequency you need to have as a brand mar- uh, as a marketer generally to actually have a meaningful effect with influencers. And that's what I that, that, that's the reason why I always actually recommend that you start with a few influencers rather than many. And that means you can focus on working with those few influencers, get really the narrative right, get the content right, get the relationship right, and use those few assets to drive as much, let's suppose, website traffic as, as you can, you know, as, as your marketing budget can, can, uh, can cope with. On the brand side, measurement is slightly different, right? Because they're usually the brand metrics when, when you have a brand campaign, they end up with usually the, the, the uh, they end up usually with intent or consideration, right? Like th- those are the things that you're, you're eventually measuring when it comes to um, a brand, uh, brand activation that you're basically asking. Usually the format is that there's a brand lift survey, um, through either of the platforms, um, uh, Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or whatever, uh, or there's a custom survey and you would ask people, and that's what the big brands do, is you ask people in those cases then, you know, would you consider buying this phone that you just saw um, more than another phone? And then the folks and then the folks that didn't see the ad are also getting the same question. So that's the control group. And then the difference between those two is eventually then going to be the uh, the uh, eventual report card of that marketing, uh, that sorry, that brand campaign that will tell you whether intent or consideration for that specific phone that you were advertising actually increased or not. Same thing in fashion. Now, um, so so it, it does it does differ, and I think it's it's the very more, the most important thing is to really make sure that you understand. What are you trying to get out of this this relationship? Um, is it a brand? Is it a brand story, or is it more about uh, more about sales? Um, my 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 general like to summarize, I would say all of this somehow, and I think to make it also actionable for a smaller brand, what I would do is I would really use um, those relationships to create content that you can use across the board. You can mm-hmm. use for brands, and you can also use for sales. Right, so you would use those same relationships, and you would use them in EMs. You would use them in your display, but you would just uh, uh, cut them in a way where the storytelling part would be far more um, coming out in venues where it's appropriate, such as a YouTube video or Instagram Reels, for example. And the sales activation, for example, would just use the influencer's face. You know, and maybe there's maybe there's a call out that you can then put in it into an EDM, for example. That's of course assuming that people actually care enough about that influencer, uh, because a lot of times also people I, I think overestimate the recognizability of these influencers um, outside of outside of their own own uh, networks. But that's I think by and large hopefully gives you a quick idea how to get started with this um, and to think about metrics to begin with. Mm, that's really detailed. Just a, a question to dig in a bit further. If I'm a solo entrepreneur at home, uh, sort of listening to this podcast, can I measure my brand building through surveys? Is that open to me on, on uh, I think you mentioned Facebook, Facebook server? 
Yeah, so unfortunately, you spend a certain amount of money. I, I mm. don't know by 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 heart now the the numbers, but they're certainly available. It's it's usually a um, certain number of media spend, uh, and it, it, it from what I know, uh, I, I can't quote the numbers that I I have because they they might be different. I'm not mm. sure if uh, Facebook gives gives universal rate cards to everybody. So, um, but but generally speaking, those are probably in tens of thousands. Uh, I would assume per market per campaign. Campaigns would need to run anywhere between two to four weeks, probably minimally. Um, and in those cases, um, what what the platforms, including YouTube and, and and Instagram and Facebook, what they do is they throw or they add a brand lift survey on top of that media spend with. With, usually with no extra cost, and that would give you that sort of um, um, t- test that you would require um, to see whether things have improved. But I think it's it's simpler, even, even if you don't have those tools available uh, uh, for you straight away. The, the thing that I would really focus on is uh, the diagnostics that usually lead up to uh, lead up to the brand becoming stronger, more recognizable, more memorable. And you can see that straight away in social, in the reactions, uh, mm-hmm. the comments and the shares. Those are great precursors, actually, that smaller brands can use. Um, and bigger brands use them as well, but there's, there's, um, but, but yeah, the, the, the diagnostics, for example, um, uh, the sharing rate, so how many, uh, how many times people share a specific piece of comment, uh, a specific piece of content divided by the reach of that post times 100, right? So that's that's a beautiful metric that actually allows you to look at how much am I, um, is my marketing spreading across across different networks? And, and, and what's interesting there is that when you start understanding that people engage and they share for entirely different reasons, very often um, in the social space. So when I say that, what I mean is that the sharing usually happens because you want to make sure that, you know, your friends see the specific content. So it's a psychologically different process than, for example, liking a piece of content or even commenting on it, right? Where usually the liking and the commenting happens in pieces where you approve or you disapprove a certain thing, but you're not ready to share that with others. Very often, that does not happen. And of course, sharing also is something that is, is, is I would say, as a marketer, it's much harder to engineer uh, because there needs to be something novel, something almost like not just approvable, but something talk worth, uh, talking worthy, something sharing worthy, right? So, so those are the two things that I would really focus on is the, is the, is the part of the engagement rate that is specifically about positive emotions and um, and what we usually sometimes call high arousal um, emotions in in market research. So you would usually focus on that. So ignore the like because the the thing about likes is that um, it's also closely correlated when you, for example, set up a, a Facebook ad campaign um, and you optimize that for engagements, then you'll see that likes are the ones that will start trickling in the first because that's how the algorithm works. It tries to it tries to put them in, in front of people 
that are more likely to like than than others. So it does that. So it means that at the, in those instances when the setup has been done in such a way that means that your like group, your engagement rate, broadly speaking, will correlate with your budget, which is meaningless for you as a marketer. But what you do want to see is the emotional reaction. Are you getting, you know, those ha-has, those um, emotional reactions that um, that you can tease out from the platform? And then comments is also a wonderful, uh, wonderful treasure trove of insights uh, where you can get a lot of interesting stuff. So with influencers, one of the most important things is when you look at comments is how many people are actually talking about your brand rather than just the influencer looking amazing, you know, because these are folks that anyway know the influencer and they follow them for certain reasons. They like their looks maybe, or they like their lifestyle, whatever those reasons might be, you know, they follow those people for certain reasons, but you partner them because you want to achieve your goals. So eventually what you want to see in those comments is as many people as possible talking about actually your brand and your product, right? That's, that's a successful partnership when you get that more than i would say five to ten percent of the comments like that's already usually a very very positive sign that a relationship is going to the right direction um in in my experience and then of course the 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 one that i already mentioned is is, is a is a fantastic precursor also for brand growth in 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 my mind is the sharing rate so those are the things that are at your disposal you know every time you do every time you do um, influencer campaigns or even generally paid social. Mm. So that's a, that's a great tip. Thank you. And so moving on to budgets, um, this is a, how long is a piece of string question? Sorry about this. But um, how uh, I get asked this a lot, you know, what should a brand pay an influencer? How much? I mean, is there any measurement out there? Yeah, it really varies a lot. It's um, it's so market specific, and it's it varies a lot. Of course, the, the folks that have depend like it depends on the platform where they natively really natively grew up. Um, I mean, it, a few hundred k of followers. I, I think generally they tend to uh, charge per post. I mean, like I don't know between two to five k US, like somewhere probably there. I mean, it, it, but it's really varied. I mean, some of the Singapore rate cars that I've seen, for example, in the past, I haven't seen those recently, but they were just, they were just crazy. Um, so it, it really, it really depends. Um, the good news is that there should be ample amount of choice. And, mm. and, and I think that the other thing is when you think about this, like you're basically buying creative work, right? Like that, that's what you're buying here. You're buying a creative, creative person's time who happens to know very well how these networks work, what gets people going, what gets them talking, what gets them engaging. So think about it in that way. To go to an agency and you know offer them a few thousand dollars, like they will not take you seriously for sure. Like it's gotta be a very, very small and usually a somewhat scrappy agency um, because they, they just, the, the economics just don't work. They've got to staff people, rents, all those sort of things. When you go to a single influencer, then the chances that you've got a really good bang for the buck is greater, but the pressure is on you in making the right choice and who do you work with, if that makes sense. So I think mm. that's, that's the important part here is to make sure that you select them well. And if you're a small brand, 
the first entry point I would look for is whether they actually just genuinely seem to like your brand. I would, I would, I would gravitate towards those folks first, first and foremost. Um, but I would also shy away from being proactive myself and introducing my product to folks that you think you want to work with. Um, because even like I work with a lot of big brands, you know, we like, for example, in, in Google's case, like there's, there's so many projects where we work with um, influencers and, and a lot of them don't necessarily know our products in, in that sort of detailed way. You know, they, they like, it, even though, for example, Google Maps has been out for such a long time or someone has been using search as we all have, you know, grown up with it, then it doesn't mean that everybody knows every feature. And, and there might be features that are completely new that people are not aware of. So it's important that you also do do that sort of proactive outreach. But the first, I would say, bastion of opportunities is, is really the folks that come into your door, make a purchase, and they say, you know, I love this. Um, your next question should be, you know, to have a following or, you know, would you be interested to work together to create some social media content? Like that's that's what I would that's what I would do. I would try to optimize my time in that sort of way. Mm, that's a smart, smart advice. Um, talking of advice, what do you do if it goes horribly wrong? Have you been in any situations <laughs> where campaign? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's an important thing to mention. Um, there's been yeah, there's there's been count, there's been I would say countless, but there's been quite a few cases. I think that uh, it's. It's not, not really that different from other marketing going wrong, perhaps. I mean, there's there's certainly more, I think, a little bit more risk when it comes to social media. Um, I mean, obviously, when you compare it to a TV ad or 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 something of that sort. But um, but I, I think the the playbook here is pretty much the same. That if you see that it's not working and and you can and, and thank god you do have those those quick diagnostics already at your disposal like we spoke earlier comments you know people leaving reactions for example or leaving some some sort of negative comments um just just look at it um and see what is what is that energy you're creating is that something good and memorable and positive for the brand or is it something that is detrimental um if it's if the net outcome in your mind is not really useful, I mean, in some cases it might be so obvious that you know ten out of ten comments is very negative. I've had those cases as well. Then the only thing to do is to immediately take it off, like just pause, um, change the creative. Like it, it, that's that should happen almost like in an hour's time um, if you see it's not going to the right direction. There's no benefit in holding it there because usually what happens is that one person notices a negative comment then you know, it attracts more of the same kind, right? So if the starting point is already, already bad, then I would be very cautious and, and, and um, rather take it down, try a different approach. Um, what's interesting though about social is that sometimes it's really hard to, you know, see, um, see that sort of negative negativity arise. Like I've had cases where, you know, we've tested. We've tested with uh, with market research agencies. We've like at least a dozen people have signed off on the creative, and then you put it out, and then there's a 
bunch of folks that are saying, um, you know, they feel offended by it for a certain reason or like something else doesn't seem to align. But that's, I, I guess, you know, the art of marketing. You know, there's the there's the science part and then there's the art part. I think if every, everything would be so replicable, then um, we probably wouldn't be here. And, um, and that's what makes it exciting and interesting as well. You can try different things, but if it really fails and you see the early signals being troublesome, then I would be very careful, carefully monitoring those diagnostics and then immediately take it, take it off. If, if you see it, it's just not going the right direction. Um, so that's, that's that. Um, there's been another branch, but bunch of things is maybe related to compliance. Like the, when you say horribly wrong, <laughs> and I'm just trying to like map out, what are the things that can go horribly wrong? So, so the first case that I gave was really about the effectiveness. Like that's that's kind of the mild horrible, so to say. The, the real horrible wrong can be that you have employed, for example, an influencer and you are ignorant yourself when it comes to compliance rules um, that we have in the world and you've just gone on with the campaign and the regulator comes back at you and starts fining you. That would be a pretty horrible outcome, I would say. It's happened repeatedly now. And, and this is really has to do with the fact that every partnership of that kind, whether it's monetary or not, has to be disclosed. And I know marketers don't like to hear this, but that's just how it is. And you need to think of it as consumers because when you see a post by, by an influencer, then it is of utmost importance that you as a user have the, a clear idea if this is something that um, was promoted by a brand or for any sort of relationship of commercial nature, or this is a genuine review. You know, it's very important. So there's been a number of law cases now, regulators um, uh, in this part of the world are not that active yet, I would say. But they're certainly, they're, they're always copying, by the way, the FT, FDA in the, uh, in the US, and then they look at the UK and also the Europe, uh, European leg legislators, uh, sorry, the regulators, and, and, they, and they mimic their, their approach by and large. Um, so assume, the, the non-lawyer version of this is that assume that all disclosure is your liability, not the influencers. There's been very few cases where influencer has been dragged to the court and that's really to make a statement that this behavior is not okay is to mask something commercial as if it would not be um, but uh, but the liability is really with the marketer that's that's very clear um, so that that's another <laughs> scene uh, but you know you can avoid it like it's not like something uh, something that can just miraculously appear uh, so that would be the second it's a horrible wrong. Um, there's probably the third category would be something with the relationship where things just go sour. Um, so it's, it's undeniable that some of those influencers are incredibly hard to work with. Uh, so you do probably need to have a bit of patience for certain, you know, drama queens, if we may, may say so. So some of those people are very young also um, when they, when they become so well known. So, you know, that sort of balance of maturity and professionalism, you're not going to find it with every influencer. But I think that common sense usually does prevail in like 99% of the cases. And when you really see those sort of like orange or red flags early on, 
then my advice is like just drop it just drop it because that like eventually in the end of the day keep in mind that long-standing relationships here will be the ones that will reap you the most rewards not the short ones right because it will take time for everybody involved in marketing to actually get into that sort of groove that gets you the most outcomes for your business so i would rather i, I would kill those relationships early on and, and rather focus on things where you can see that you know i could see myself working with that influencer content creator for not just this campaign but maybe several campaigns down the line like those are the things that i would i would rather focus on mm-hmm. do you think actually that's a great point do you think um followers of influencers appreciate that long-term relationship rather than a kind of one-off yeah it really depends i think how it's done um i mean if, if if every month or so there's a new coupon code that is being that is being <laughs> shared then I, I i think the answer is no mm-hmm. um but if, if you yeah you, you better be true to what you're dealing with here i mean people increasingly don't like ads and, and, and want to have things authentic and real and caring. So I, I think if you keep that in mind, then, 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 then it shouldn't be an issue at all. Like there's uh, seeing through a hope relationship for a couple of years is, is I think the best you can have. If, if the influencer of course is interested themselves as well. I see. And then any apps that you can recommend for, uh, to improve our influencer marketing? make it more efficient or tracking apps yeah there, there's a ton there's a ton i think there's been some normalization recently but there, there's really a lot of a um, lot of different uh, companies and tools that are offering identification measurement uh, discovery like detecting fake followers all that sort of stuff um i recently or i mean i i really got stuck with modash i just like them so much m-o-d-a-s-h uh i don't i don't get anything for mentioning them and and uh neither should anybody else um so it is it is a very genuinely uh honest and heartfelt uh experience that i've had uh which is very positive i, I think their data capabilities and also the way how the user interface is built is is very usable very friendly very simple to understand they cover but they they cover um uh, instagram tiktok and i think youtube so it's not all the channels that you could possibly want but for my use case it's always been always been the go-to place but there's there's many others like there's there's a ton of others i think the general um oh i like hype auditor that's another one uh, although i don't know how they're not doing given the war uh it was i think it was a company based in saint petersburg actually but they, their data was um, and the capability of the tool was also very very incredible uh so those two um i've gravitated towards and i've used quite heavily in the past uh but again there, there's a bunch in the u.s there's there's a bu- there's a bunch here as well um i think the general rule is that uh try try to try to focus on tools that actually enable you to look further than the influencer. That's my, that's my first recommendation is that see if you get proper analytics out of these tools that help you to understand how they actually reach an audience that you care about. And it sounds so 
so damn obvious, but unfortunately, a lot of these tools, um, I, I think they just want to confuse you with nice graphics and 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 just you know stick to your lane and 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 what you know drives value for your business. And I think then you can't really go wrong. Um, but you can, of course, waste a lot of time with testing these tools. But but I think that that will be my kind of advice for a shortcut. Of course, you can also go by recommendations. There's a bunch of things online. But um, getting a tool is certainly a good idea. I think they've become so affordable these days that they uh, and the value they offer, they can really shortcut your discovery process significantly because you can use things like keywords to find influencers. Um, another metric that I really love is like how, how much other influencers are following that one influencer. Like that's a really good metric also to look at because they, very often in a single country, um, People really talk and, and keep um, keep close contact between influencers, so it's it's a good thing to see. Like if that number is higher, I would always prioritize that person um, because that means also your reach is higher. Sometimes they just organically share stuff, etc. Um, I, I always look at fake influencers, uh, uh, sorry, fake fake followers. How much is that rate? Uh, some of those tools that I mentioned already have this sort of automatic detection. I don't think it's like super foolproof, to be honest, uh, from what I've seen, but it's pretty accurate because um, you can see certain anomalies in the data over time and, and then detect whether that is unnatural, so to say, or it's something that shouldn't happen, like the rate at which one grows their account. So, uh, or for example, when, when that stops altogether, that's usually a sign that those tools will pick up. So it helps you tremendously. And it helps you also to, on the measurement side because you can, you can look at when you started that activation, what happened with those pieces of content. So it makes things a lot easier, especially if you're, you're a small team, but also if you're bigger, it's just, I, I think honestly, it's a, what one, getting one tool is, is, is good enough. Um, and then I think the rest, um, rest of the process is really like influencers really like to do DMs or just direct messages. Um, um, well, because I work for Google, we, we use the whole Google suit. A lot of stuff happens in, in spreadsheets. Um, but uh, but yeah, those those would be those would be my my advice. That's great. That's some great tips. So discoverer meaning for those at home who may not understand the marketing terms, finding the right influencer. And then, and then these tools are great for assessing, you know, uh, the actual influencer. Have I got, have I summarized that correctly? Yeah, spot on. Brilliant. And Modash was one and the one from St. Petersburg, just to, so we can catch the name. Hi. Uh, no, Modash is, uh, I think they're actually based, uh, based, it's a Canadian guy, but it's a weird story. He's based out of, uh, out of Estonia. That's why oh, I know, I know, I know him originally. But I was recommended, I had no idea, uh, I was recommended by someone else. Um, and it came out that it was, uh, it was an Estonian, it, I think it's a registered Estonian company. But, but, uh, but honestly, that does not matter at all. Uh, they, I, I, I'm, I'm usually very skeptical at things um, and, and people making lofty claims. I think this is one of those companies where I see that they, they walk the talk, so I'm, I'm happy to yeah. recommend them. 
Um, so the, the, other one, the other one is Hypoditor. So that one was it, based out of uh, St. Petersburg. Yeah, I hope they're doing well, though I'm not sure uh, given yeah. where, the, where the world is today. Absolutely. So our very last question, or my very last question is, any um, case studies for fashion influencer uh, marketing? You know, fashion brands that have used influencer marketing in a really good way, based on all the things you've taught us today. Anything? Yeah, it's, it's I I have to say that my my daily daily job is really more in tech uh, yes. apps and that sort of stuff. But what I've seen something that I always I still admire is the whole Daniel Wellington case. And I know it's such an old case, and 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 you know it's it's a big brand now. But I mean the fact that someone just growing their business with influencer marketing from like a small, tiny, tiny, like uh, I think 20, 30K operation into, uh, I think it's now valued over two or $300 million. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite insane. And, and it is probably one of those, uh, one of those, not, not just fashion, but generally one of those really amazing cases of how influencer marketing kind of work. Um, and now they're opening up. I don't know if you've noticed in Singapore, they're opening up stores, like physical mm. stores, right? So they're they 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 the, the the thing about them though, which is important to understand, is that is that they started at a time when Instagram was new, right? So they started giving out, reaching out to influencers, and then saying, "Hey, post a picture using this watch," and then spread the coupon code. So it was actually very boring in, in initially. Um, but they they've kept at it, and they've also made the brief way more interesting. Um, uh, the, the, the eventually, I think what they were gunning for is to create that sort of user-generated content machine on Instagram that drives them such an amount of traffic on the website that that the product becomes um, synonymous with um, with affordable and beautiful watches which they successfully did. And now that the brand has grown so much, you can clearly see that their tone of voice, the way how they use influencers is, is, is changing a lot. They're moving into far more, I would say, premium territory. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, using influencers like Kaylee Bieber or like uh, other, all sorts of names also from our end of the world um, gives you that sort of, I, I think just the, the professionalism of that team, of that marketing team is something that I've admired for, for quite a number of years. So I think it's something that is worth studying to a great degree. Not that everything is, is re replicable. I don't think so because again, they started in a very unique time, but there is a lot to learn there, like how their influencer game is. Um, so I, I'd say that's one of my favorites. I think everybody else ever since that case, um, a lot of the other big, bigger brands like Reebok or Nike, um, all those folks, like they've, they've, I think they've tried to duplicate or almost like uh, replicate that playbook. Um, but it's it's a different story if you've kind of grown up like that. That's literally your the, the fire under your your business. Um, so you can see a very different type of approach. And I would I would gravitate towards businesses um, that are. Yeah, that are native, so to say, digital. Because the Nikes and the Reeboks of the world, they'll always be a couple of steps behind when it comes to innovation. They're trying to almost retrofit things um, that are new and exciting, right? So that's 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 another one. Um, yeah, so 
that's what I, yeah, that's hopefully worth learning from, I think. Oh, definitely. I think the whole session has been so intriguing, Seem. So thank you so much for your time. Um, giving me personally a lot of food for thought too, um, as a fashion marketer. So wishing you all the best for the rest of the year. Thank you so much. And uh, best of luck with businesses uh, all around the internet. And, um, and, and yeah, uh, good luck with influencer marketing and, and achieving your goals. Thank you. Bye now. Bye.